Hey everyone, it's Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast. For people who want to live in Central Oregon, unfortunately, what we're going to see is we're going to see a lowering of expectations in terms of, of maybe their beginning house. Our biggest challenge in Bend right now with the land that we have available is infrastructure. We need more houses and so blocking housing development doesn't help Central Oregon. The issue of groundwater is very much a concern. Part of the problem that we have right now in America is not guns, because guns don't shoot anyone. Guns don't, guns don't kill people, people kill people. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we are excited to bring you Michael Seip, who is a business leader and Republican candidate for House District 53. Michael has a really interesting background. He has a black belt in martial arts. He served as an army ranger. He started multiple businesses, and he also is very involved in Oregon's Christian community. For example, he hosted the High Desert Men's Summit, which actually brought out presidential candidate Mike Huckabee in 2008, which I thought was quite a funny throwback to remember that <laughs> Huckabee ran for president twice. And that was a whole thing. But yeah, he's got a lot of community experience. We talk a lot, really a wide variety of issues, everything from water and droughts that are facing some parts of Central Oregon to drugs and to guns. So Ben, what did you think of the episode? I thought it was a really interesting conversation. We obviously recently interviewed Emerson Levy on the podcast and they're running against each other in House District 53. It's like a big chunk of Bend, a chunk of Redmond and some rural area in between. It's considered one of the most competitive races in the state and sure to draw lots of money and lots of attention. So I think my takeaway from those two conversations is that Voters actually do have a pretty clear different options. There's a, a real choice for voters and not in like a good or bad way. I just think they are very different people with very different worldviews. And I enjoyed talking to Michael. I think we talked a lot at the front end about housing, water issues. There's definitely areas there where I hope Republicans and, and Democrats will work together in 2023 as we, we kind of talk about, like these issues are happening in legislative districts across the state because they're not necessarily geographic issues, although geography does play a role sometimes. So yeah, I thought it was a good conversation. The one thing I am going to add before we go in, we do have a, a bit of a, a exchange on guns and gun safety, gun control, et cetera. He had a couple of proposals that I actually would support that I think Alex would oppose actually. So that was interesting, but I do want to give some, I mentioned in the episode that I would offer some numbers and let listeners decide average deaths per year by guns in the United States from 2016 to 2020, the average annual death was 40,620. It was the leading cause of death of children and teens. And the United States has a gun homicide rate of 26 times that of other high income countries. So there's the data. You all can make your own decisions about what that data means and whether it's an emergency, a crisis, whatever. But yeah, Alex, any highlights you want to mention before we jump into the interview? Nope. Yeah, I think we just covered a wide range of issues. And yeah, you guys had quite significant difference of issues on guns. I disagreed with him on quite a few issues on guns too. So that was kind of interesting to kind of have that have that angle from both sides of it compared to the pod, which rarely happens. Yeah, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. Please make sure to give us five stars and leave a comment if you would so do. And also go check us out on YouTube if you just type in Oregon Bridge Podcast. You can definitely find us that way into the YouTube search bar and go subscribe there. You'll see all the video content as well. So that's it. And we'll dive right into the episode. Thanks, everyone. 
All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. We are really excited to bring you from Central Oregon today, Michael Seip, who is running for Oregon House District 53. Michael, how's it going today? Great. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. So you do have to tell us a little bit about your background. And there's a couple of things that I picked out in particular. So one, you served as an army ranger. And then two, you have a black belt in, and I may be butchering this, Aikido, Akad something. So I'm going to embarrass myself for saying that. (laughs) You have a black belt in martial arts, which is pretty darn cool. So just a question, how did you eventually find yourself out into Central Oregon? I'm a fisherman. So I came Mm. up here to fish on the Deschutes and the Metolius. Uh, I did well on the Deschutes and the Metolius uh, was uh, more challenging than expected. So I had to keep coming back and we ultimately just moved here and I still haven't figured it out. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. So moved out here, lots of fishing and things like that. And then when did you arrive out in central Oregon? We moved up here in 2004. Okay. Michael, Michael, have you read the book stronghold? Um, It's about, it's about, um, it's about, it's sort of a long story, but it's about fishing. And there's a a few anecdotes about fishing in the Deschutes and how, uh, I forget that there's like a pop, a specific population of steelhead that is unfortunately declining in the Deschutes, but it talks about how like the, the steelhead in this one section of the Deschutes are like the, the hardest to catch, like the most aggressive. Uh, so I just, I was wondering those, if you, those are the ones I didn't catch. <laughs> yeah. Those, those are the ones, ones that are still out there. Yeah. Anyway, They're still uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, very good. Uh, okay. So then uh, I did want to ask a little bit more about your your professional background. So uh, on your campaign website and on your LinkedIn, uh, you're listed as the co-founder or founder of Crosspoint Private Equity Advisors. Uh, and I personally don't know that much about private equity. Uh, I do know that private equity, both on the political right and the political ta- and the political left, gets attacked quite often uh, for you know accused of breaking up companies or you know mm-hmm. shipping jobs out and things like that. Uh, just kind of curious to to clarify a little bit, uh, what exactly is private equity? Can you just kind of talk a little bit about that? Uh, and then also, you know, what does kind of a transaction look like or a deal look like kind of from, from your perspective as a business owner? Sure. So I'm, I'm actually a mergers and acquisitions advisor. So I don't do private equity work, but as opposed to an investment banker that would sell public securities or work in Wall Street, I work with private equity, so private equities of privately held companies. Although we Mm. might sell them to public Mm. companies, my clients are typically entrepreneurial private companies, and we're in the process of transferring that private equity, which is the use of that name. I actually coined that phrase before it became popular many years ago. So I've been selling companies for over 30 years. And so I work with buyers and sellers of uh, middle market companies doing manufacturing, distribution, business services, sales and marketing companies, a couple million to 50 million in revenue typically. Okay. No, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm curious of, from your, uh, it sounds like you have a lot of experience doing that. Uh, one thing that always shocks me about the American economic system, and there's a great little, actually, I don't think it's a book. It's probably not long enough for that, but it's a uh, parable or whatever called iPencil, which is like, it's all the different steps basically that have to go in in terms of creating a pencil or something like that. And it's like, obviously there's tons of manufacturers, distributors, resources that comes from different places. Uh, what's the most interesting deal from your perspective of like a company or a transaction that you participated in? 
Well, you know, I think I have to say, actually, the reason I've been doing this over 30 years is because every single one of them is fascinating. And that's what really intrigues me about continuing to do the work, because um, I get a chance to see over and over and over again, different ways that people have figured out how to put together a valuable offering, um, hold it together, hire people around it, find customers, make a profit, uh, succeed through the ups and downs and everything. And so I don't think that I could actually say that any one of them is any more interesting than the, than another because I just love business. Hmm. Um, well, let's transition, Michael, to talking about policy a little bit. Um, I imagine you're hearing questions about this topic from your constituents uh, in Central Oregon. Um, I'm hearing a lot in Tigard about housing and the lack of affordable housing and how the cost of housing is um, going up. Alex actually was looking at moving to Bend for a period, and he said today that the average home price in, uh, is this in Bend, Alex, the $800,000 number? Yeah, and it was actually eight sixty dollars uh, back in February. So it's dropped some, but it's yeah, 800000 in the Bend area, according to Zillow. Which is obviously out of reach for a huge portion of Oregonians. It's just not a realistic possibility to pay for a home at that level. So I'm curious how you think about the housing crisis we're facing in Oregon and what what types of solutions you're interested in pursuing in the state legislature. Sure. So, so I have about 50 of the top business clients as uh, my executive coaching clients here in, in Central Oregon. And one of the biggest challenges that uh, that we all have is finding employees. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of that is because if they want to move here, um, we can pay a reasonable wage, especially a reasonable wage for Central Oregon, given all the benefits of living here. Mm -hmm. But it's virtually impossible mm -hmm. to help people get into a house here. So it's extremely difficult. And that's particularly true for kind of middle level uh, employees. So what you would call workforce housing, because there's different mm -hmm. segments of the housing business. So my my biggest area of interest, because I focus in the business community so much, is really that workforce housing arena. That's extremely difficult for a, uh, and particularly for a single executive to come into Bend, um, or for a, a family that needs a larger um, house. It's real difficult. And I don't see that changing um, anytime soon, except that um, for people who want to live in Central Oregon, unfortunately, what we're going to see is we're going to see a lowering of expectations in terms of, of maybe their beginning house in Central Oregon. It might have to be an apartment, um, might have to be smaller than what they think. But, but all of us have been in that circumstance, right? You remember when you got out of school, when they bought you the apartment so you could go get a job? No, no, you... Yeah, I had to move in with my dad for three years so I could afford to do anything. <laughs> right. So, I, yeah, that's my point is that, you know, it, we've all been in circumstances where we had to compromise in order to live a place that we wanted to live. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I think that that in order for us to be able to um, continue to have a vibrant labor force, that um, people are going to have to lower their expectations somewhat. The good news is we live in Central Oregon, which is gorgeous and an amazing place to live. And so if you have to trade off a uh, six bedroom house in Nebraska for living in Bend in a three bedroom apartment or something, I don't know, Bend is a pretty good choice, but it, yeah. it's a real challenge. Yeah. Do, the, are there, from the standpoint of policy. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to ask is like, do you think that there 
are there things that the legislature should do or the governor should do to try to make it easier for home buyers? Sure, we need to really rationalize this whole um, uh, land management situation. The uh, I, I understand kind of how we got here and what the what the intent was, but the uh, the restrictions on um, urban growth um, and the boundaries that have been in place around um, cities are just driving um, the cost up because demand is high and uh, supply is low. And whenever you have that circumstance, then you have problems. We also have then this drive toward um, toward infill, but that has its own challenges in terms of transportation and parking. And it's definitely not a panacea. So I think we have to really take a hard look at urban growth boundaries, but there's an, a more critical piece than that. Um, because if we just expanded the urban growth boundary in Bend, that wouldn't really solve the problem instantly. Our biggest challenge in Bend right now with the, the land that we have available is infrastructure. And so mm. one of the key things that the legislature could do, maybe you and I can work on this, one of the things we could do is some strategic infrastructure funding that could actually help put in the roads and the sewer and the power and the water that are necessary in order to build this. Because if the, if the full cost of that has to be borne by the developers and then passed on through or, or through the SDCs. city through system development charges, SDCs. yeah, you know, we're going to end up with houses that are even more expensive. And, uh, and so that's where we're high centered really in uh, big chunks of Bend that we just can't develop because it's just too expensive because the infrastructure isn't in place. So we could do some work on that. The other thing that the legislature could do is if you look at the gap between what it takes to actually put a workforce affordable housing project together by an affordable housing developer and, and what um, the project will bear, um, it's really not huge amounts of money. So each project could be, actually that gap could be bridged and viable with uh, just a few million dollars, not hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. So we're actually close but no cigar on some of the workforce housing stuff. And so I, I think that there's an opportunity to take relatively small amounts of money, use it surgically to help the workforce housing developers actually be able to move forward, put some infrastructure in place. It's gonna be there obviously for decades. And so everyone benefits out of that. And uh, I think those are really the key things that uh, you and I really ought to take a look at. All right, so just so I'm clear, um, like basically like targeted subsidies that would be basically bridge the gap to make it profitable to develop more workforce style housing that's affordable for people to move to Bend for for jobs. Sure, there, there's, uh, there's other things at the local level that could be done, but I'm just talking specifically about yeah. the legislature because that's where where I'm planning to go. So the local stuff is is tax related and other things, but uh, at the legislature, I think some surgical um, investments that would allow that to take place. And the reality of it is if we can solve some of the employment problems and, and solve some of the workforce housing challenges, then that money is gonna come back pretty quickly in, in the form of taxes because we're gonna have a much more vibrant yep. business economy. No, I, I totally agree. I was actually talking to some folks at Metro recently who, we're talking about how like profitability wise for developers, there's just not really an incentive um, in a lot of cases to develop the kind of houses, housing we need uh, more units from. Um, so I do, I totally agree. I think um, some targeted subsidies is a really smart approach there. We might not be able to work together on the urban growth uh, issue. We might disagree on that one, but let's stick to the stuff we do. Um, 
so the right bikes together. Okay. <laughs> yes. That'd be fun. Um, so related to housing, but, um, also its own issue for a lot of different reasons. I don't know if you saw the OPB article that came out is called race to the bottom, how central Oregon groundwater sells to the highest bidders, um, is this long expose. It came out a couple of days ago and there's a ton of stuff in there. It's, it talks a lot about this proposed Thornburg development, which I had not heard of actually. Um, I'm sure folks in central Oregon are more familiar with it. Which, but which was, I believe that's also in the Oregon House 53 district, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Oh, is it? Okay. So I'm sure you're. And I, and I, yeah, I think it's well. like swamp right in the middle. Yeah. So a few things I, I'm curious about on this. Um, the, the first and like, I think most, the, the thing that jumped out to me most was about wells and water levels and how like there's one quote um near where thornburg lies the water level in monitored wells has been shrinking more than a foot per year for decades state data show uh and then a quote from oregon water resources department deputy director doug woodcock he says the declines are starting to become significant and it's not going away um, I imagine water is probably something that folks in your part of the world are pretty concerned about, particularly in times of drought, like we're um, experiencing right now. Um, I guess before we talk policy on that, are are people asking you about water issues or concerned about uh, accessibility or cost of water? Like, what are people talking about when they talk about water in Central Oregon? So I don't actually have a really huge portion of HD 53. That's that's what you would call agricultural. I mean, there's mm. there there's some hay ranches, some hay farms. There's you know there's small small ranches. Most of that is actually north of me, mm. and so the when you get into to Madras and up north, then that area um, is uh, is definitely impacted tremendously. And so we're we're concerned about it. And we're definitely talking about it, but the impact in in Central Oregon, my part of Central Oregon, Bend, HD53, is uh, not so much in terms of, of an agricultural situation. The issue of groundwater is very much a concern. <clears throat> now, there's a couple of, of things, though, that are really not talked about very much. One is uh, cannabis. And so the, the cannabis and... Uh, and hemp fields that are in place, and particularly cannabis, um, are actually a real challenge for groundwater. And we see this throughout HD 53 and the surrounding rural areas. I have a number of friends that, that own um, rural property, agricultural property, typically smaller properties, you know, 10, 20, 40, 60, 100 acres. Um, and the, uh, the groundwater issue is really significant where there's properties that have, have gone in that support cannabis grows. And I don't know all the agricultural reasons for why that may be, but I do know that we're definitely seeing a depletion of well water and groundwater levels around that activity. And so that's concerning. And obviously we have different uh, competing factions about that topic. I'm just talking about groundwater right now and the impact of it. But Michael, let me give you another one. That just real quick is, is, is the theory basically that people are using that groundwater for agricultural purposes with cannabis crop basically depleting it? Yes. Got it. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. And uh, the other one, though, that's a, a really interesting one that um, really people aren't talking about, but that I think is actually um, going to be a topic of conversation. And I, I think really 
should be looked at here in this conversation, particularly about groundwater, and that's junipers. So junipers are not native to our area and junipers, uh, you know, for, for many people, although, although they're green, you know, and they, they go up in the air and they look like a tree, they're, they're actually um, considered by many people to be a weed. Okay. Very large weed, of course, right. um, but they're, they're very, very water hungry. And so um, if you, uh, if you have about 30 of those trees within, uh, you know, a half acre or an acre, which is, is, pretty normal all across central Oregon, yeah. they will literally suck up all the rainwater that comes in a year just because of how thirsty they are. Um, there are scientists that can give you the exact stats on that, but the uh, the challenge around um, all of the junipers here is that they they literally are draining and impacting the, the groundwater. Now, I have some of my friends who are super green, and when you talk about cutting down junipers, I think you're <laughs> You know, you're de you're destroying old growth forests, all that <laughs> stuff. But but they're they're not old growth forests, and uh, and and they're they're very very pervasive all throughout Central Oregon. I think it's pretty important to take a look at thinning those selectively and from a water perspective, particularly if the drought continues. This is not something that you're going to hear, you know, typically spoken of because people want to talk about big grandiose policy things, but. Listen, if we just were selective about how many junipers were growing across central Oregon, we could actually make an impact in this area. Hmm. Actually, one follow-up, Alex, before I go to you. Can you give an overview um, to, to, the, to whatever extent that you're able about this proposed Thornburg resort? And is this a hot topic in, in your district? Are people talking about this a lot? It was new to me. I had not heard of it. It's been a hot topic for years. Um, so I've known the developer probably 15 years. So okay. we we go to church together, have gone to church together, um, and I know him well. I've, I've followed the process of this. Um, <clears throat> Landwatch has, has been opposed to this, and uh, there have been probably 50 lawsuits around this, all of which wow. Thornburg has prevailed in. Um, it's been very, very contentious um, with a certain group of people that have gone after uh, the developer of Thornburg uh, repeatedly in court. Um, that continues, but, but repeatedly he has prevailed. Now, I don't know what the current status of that is, um, but my understanding is that the all of the issues around groundwater and the issues around the, the usage and the appropriateness of it, those have all been thrashed out for the last 10, 12 years and are resolved. Now, that doesn't mean there's not still... Um, opposition to Thornburg. And it doesn't mean there's still not people in Tumalo that, which Tumalo is where I live actually, and, and Thornburg okay. is in Tumalo, which is a portion of the district. Tumalo is not the financial capital of the world, but it's a pretty <laughs> cool place. It is. It's I, yeah, mostly it is. rural. Yeah. So the, uh, so anyway, there's, uh, there's certainly a number of people in Tumalo that are opposed to, uh, to the Thornburg development and to the increase in housing. Um, and, and then you have the other argument, which is basically we need more houses. We need more houses mm -hmm. of all kinds of houses. We, you know, when you, when you have upper end houses, um, they, uh, move, they create a place for people to move up. That frees up the next level and so on down the line. And so, you know, I don't mean this in a cavalier way, but we need more houses. And so blocking housing development doesn't help Central Oregon. Mm. particularly if it's not being, if the developments are not being done in a crazy way. And 
I believe after 50 lawsuits uh, or however many there's been, we've had plenty of time to, to thrash out whether or not this is being done in a responsible way or not. That's that's really interesting. Um, Tumalo actually comes up in this article. They talk about how they changed the name from Laidlaw to Tumalo, um, and it, it's actually related to w- water rights and and like the promise of water being diverted. And it's actually really we'll link to the story um, in the description of the podcast episode. Um, but yeah, it, se- it seems like water is becoming to your point. It's been a high profile issue in terms of these lawsuits for a long time. But I think part of the the article is talking about how basically like the state allowed the state allowed um, or granted permits to for a certain amount of water usage, but that permit expired within five years and the development didn't start by then. So now there's like all this new pressure on the state to like scale back what it allows Thornburg to claim in terms of water. And then part of this is the developer is like, offered to extend water rights to an irrigation district that I think is probably really close to where you live, who's going through droughts and trying to potentially use that to, you know, get more access to other water. It's deeply, much more complex than I gave it credit for um, in terms of water rights and, um, you know, the politics of water, especially in central Oregon. Uh, But it was really interesting piece. I appreciate offering your perspective. Yeah, the politics are very complicated. You know, there's there's kind of the groundwater piece, and there's there's a whole lot of science that says that because of the uh, of the slope from the Cascades down into Central Oregon and and what happens underneath and the the reserves that that there's plenty of groundwater. I'm not making that claim. I haven't you know I haven't drilled a thousand foot well to check it, but there's there's plenty of science that says that we have um, a really good source of groundwater. So that's that's an issue around wells, but then the other issue really is about irrigation and about irrigation water. And so part of what Cameron's looking to do, which which others are doing, and which has become much much more complicated. You would think that if someone had water and a farmer needed water, that getting them the water would be pretty straightforward. Like this right. is this should right. be like government right. should say, uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's figure <laughs> out how to make it easy. But we're not making it easy, and uh, and and so that um, issue about getting water to the farmers north of us, um, selling water units, selling water rights and, and allowing that to happen is definitely contentious and it's a challenge. So we we have, uh, as in many things government, we have a real inefficiency of allocation of resources. We're from the government, we're here to help you. Oh, <laughs> sorry, that didn't work so well. That, that, is, that is what I tell Ben when he comes to help me. <laughs> that it didn't work so well, Ben. Uh, <laughs> No, no well, comment at this time. No, no comment at this time. Uh, okay, so moving on to to different issue, I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, mental health, addiction, and also kind of interweave homelessness into that same question, which is, of course, probably could be an hour long conversation at least about each of those. Uh, in general, I mean, we've seen this through polling with OBBC or I mean, basically every poll that. Oregonians are very concerned about homelessness and they're very concerned about uh, about drug use, mental health, addiction, all of that sort of thing. Uh, the One of the biggest measures that we've seen to combat this, I think, is, is Measure 110, uh, which, of course, decriminalized some of these drugs, was supposed to put funding into addiction services. And I think that the cat is really not out of the bag on that one yet, that it's doing a lot to combat addiction. But my question is to you, since I know also an issue that you highlighted on your website is 
what role and what sort of policies do you think that the state legislature could enact to you know help to combat addiction is it uh, is it more funding? Is it working with more community groups? Is it building, you know, more centers or things like that? How do you kind of look at that issue? Sure. So Measure 110 is a total disaster. Okay. The and it's you know there's two parts to it. One is the decriminalization and the the thing that the I, I think that the legislature should do um, two things immediately. One is that we need to increase the enforcement actions against the the folks who actually push drugs. So possession of drugs in Oregon is, you know, user quantities is now legalized, but selling drugs and, and selling lots of drugs is not legal. And so we need to put some more attention into that. Um, I'm a strong law and order candidate. And I believe that, that trying to stem the flow of drugs into Oregon, obviously we'll never stop it, but trying to stem the flow, slow it down is gonna save lives and, and also save uh, people from mental health and addiction. So I think that's one thing we can do at the state level. The second thing is if, we, if we're not gonna repeal measure 110, which would be my preference, that we just repeal the whole thing and can go back to where we were and start fresh. Um, that's probably not going to happen. But um, if it's not going to happen, then what I think we need to do is I think we need to give the, um, the law enforcement officers a little bit of teeth for mandatory referrals. So I actually have uh, personal experience with uh, with family member with addiction, and and so I understand. I've ridden this roller coaster, and and I understand sort of how that all works. And without mandatory referral, the probability of someone uh, of the vast majority of people who are, are struggling seeking treatment is is really small. And right now, you know, there's it's a hundred dollar kind of fix it ticket that you don't even have to fix and there's no limit to them. And so basically if you're a police officer, this is kind of like, why bother with this? This is not doing anything at all. So those are two things on the on the decriminalization side that I think the legislature needs to jump on right away. Second thing is this, this is a complete debacle in terms of the, the uh, funding that was supposed to come from the marijuana tax has been sitting at, um, at OHA. It's been sitting at the state now ever since the, the bill was passed and not being distributed. This is an absolute disaster because the thing that was that sold Measure 110 to so many Oregonians was that we, we wouldn't put people who are struggling with drugs in prison, not that we were actually doing much of that anyway, but, but we wouldn't put them in prison and we were gonna get them into treatment. We were gonna give them treatment options. And you know, I, I think that a rational Oregonian would say, hmm, not a bad plan, you know, let's not throw somebody who, you know, maybe smokes a little weed, let's not just throw them in jail. You know, let's uh, let's let's uh, look at getting treatment. Well, the problem is the state let us all down and didn't provide the treatment. And they've created this enormous bureaucracy at the state trying to figure out who gets the money. And they've been wrestling around with that forever. There's an easy solution to that. So I'm very much in favor of local control. We should have immediately taken that money and divided it up and given it to the counties. The counties have the distribution mechanism for the money. They have the vehicles to do this. We could have gone after this treatment thing two years ago immediately by getting the money in the hands of the people who can actually do the work. There, This is a big problem when you've got a consolidation of power at the state. You end up with this massive bureaucracy and the people who are supposed to get served don't get served. Yeah, no, I think, oh, sorry, you about to jump in, Ben? No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's, no, that's it. interesting. And I mean, yeah, I think that's to seen, uh, I wouldn't say maybe across the whole political spectrum, but I think in general, people are pretty upset with 
how the rollout of, of measure 110 has happened compared compared to what was promised. Uh, and then shifting gears here again, I know we're going through. Before, before you shift, oh, I will ahead. just say my understanding is there's an article from June that said money for this from OPB, money for measure 110 addiction services finally arrives. Um, so I think they they have sort of corrected the problems, but to, and, and I think part of the challenge here was that this was done by ballot measure, not by legislature. Um, so the the mechanisms that they created, like there's literally a quote from the governor's office, I think that said, like, we don't have jurisdiction here because the the language of this, you know, ballot measure, which is approved by voters, required this certain body to be created. Um, so I think that's that's sort of a, a challenge of legislating by ballot measure, right? Is like it's hard to it's it's hard to have it's hard to take the perspectives of all stakeholders and design a coherent system uh, when you're forced to basically choose up or down on language as as written. But um, yeah, I, I am obviously not here to defend the rollout of Measure One Ten money because it was not uh, it was not done well. No, no, I I think that. Uh... I think that we could have easily, were you, if you and I were in legislature, we could have <laughs> predicted how this was going to go. Okay, this 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 is not really any big like mystery about what happened. And and statutorily, there are things that can be done and could have been done to just manage this thing. So even if there was a body, we could have still had the body give the money to people who could have done the work, and we would have saved a lot of lives. This is this is really a tragedy that didn't have to happen. Yeah. And yeah, so the next uh, thing I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, definitely been on a lot of, uh, I would say, top of mind, both nationally, but then with Oregonians as well, is is gun control. Uh, and we did have your your opponent on the podcast just a, a couple of weeks ago, right after the tragedy in Texas, who kind of talked about some of the different policy prescriptions from her perspective, uh, both with uh, just kind of uh, gun control, gun safety in general, and then also in, in regards to school shootings. Uh, I just want to ask, though, you know, kind of what your your general stance is. Uh, and for me, I think it's like Oregon is really interesting in the way that, especially right in the area that you're in with the shoots, is that there's a lot of people who I would say are, well, especially newer people who are center left, you know, maybe they don't align with the GOP on things like social issues. But Oregon, of course, has a very outdoorsy conservationist culture where there's a lot of people that hunt and there's a lot of people that grew up with guns. Uh, our editor, for example, Buddy, uh, who considers himself to be a progressive, he's much more moderate on guns, I would say, than, you know, uh, kind of some other folks in it. Uh, I'm a gun owner myself. I own, you know, multiple firearms. I store them in a safe way, do all of that sort of thing. Uh, just kind of curious from your perspective of, obviously, there's, you know, a ballot measure that's coming up. Uh, I think if Democrats are to retain control of, you know, both houses and then also contain control of the governorship, they'll probably try to take more action on guns as well. Uh, kind of curious where you fall on the issue in terms of things like uh, like bans on assault rifles, magazine restrictions and things like that. Sure, it's a huge question. Um, I actually wrote a long blog post on it. So if you if you are interested and can't sleep one night, you can um, you can check it out because I actually went into detail on this. So I'm very pro Second Amendment. I grew up with guns. I uh, I got my first rifle at age 12. Um, I went in the I, I shot competitive rifle in high school. I shot competitive rifle in the military. 
I'm a military guy, a combat arms guy. Um, I hunt, I shoot, I, uh, but here's, here's one of the things that um, I think is super important. And, and here's a place that I diverge from some of my farther right um, compatriots, okay? Because I think part of the problem that we have right now in America is, is, is not guns, because guns don't shoot anyone. Guns don't, guns don't kill people. People kill people and they use bombs or knives or whatever poison or whatever it is they use. And they do, in fact, use guns. One of the things that we don't have and that I actually believe makes a lot of sense um, is we don't have a good requirement for education for gun ownership. So I grew up with guns. You grew up with guns. You probably remember every time you went out with your dad or your grandfather or whoever you, you went out with guns, there was a safety briefing. There was a safety talk. Safety is, is paramount around the use of guns with people who are comfortable and familiar with them. And, and right now, we, um, we really don't have much of that in our culture, and we certainly don't have it as a, uh, as a requirement for first-time gun buyers. This, is not, this, this comment is not going to make friends with some of my far-right people, but I actually think we need more education, um, not more restrictions, but more education and proper usage. See, the reality of it, though, is if you look at it across the country, there's about 400 million guns out in the marketplace in the United States. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of guns in the US. <laughs> 300 yeah. and 330 some odd million people are not running around shooting other people. Okay. They're not blasting up anywhere. They're not blasting up shopping centers. 330 some odd million people are responsibly owning and using guns in America. Then we've got the fringe and we have we have a real problem with those. And that is super tragic. It's a horrible thing. Um, you know, to to see kids shot is, is awful. See, anyone shot like that is awful. And so the issue of mental health is really important. Um, but there's another piece that I think is, and it won't get me in, uh, in good graces with the far right, but I think it's a moderate approach that makes sense. And that is that I believe that for first time home buyer, or first time, I'm sorry, if not home buyers, they have to wait 30 days or more. First time gun buyers, um, I think it makes sense to have a 30 day wait period. And, and it's not so much about the mass shooting thing, it's about suicides. So when, when you look at the statistics on suicides, there's about a 50% greater chance that someone who committed suicide with a handgun bought it within 30 days. And so it, it kind of is indicative of some of the state of mind that goes into that. So I actually think that it makes sense to look at having a 30-day wait period. Look, in, in the absence of an attack by a foreign power, or, or domestic power, in the absence of an attack like that, I can't think of a reason that a first-time gun buyer has to have a gun over the counter immediately. And so I think it makes sense to have a 30-day wait and, uh, and a bit of a cooling off period. In that wait period, you can put some training and you can get people prepared to be able to take ownership of that uh, firearm, whether it be a handgun or, a, uh, or a, long, a long gun. So those are a couple of the things that I think make a lot of sense. Um, they're not, they don't go as far as some of the far left um, people who are, are, are definitely totally against guns. And they're not super popular with people who say free for all, everybody gets to do whatever they want to. I think there's some reasonable things that can make this safer for everybody. Yeah, no, I think it's, it, it's interesting that you, you talk about that. And I mean, I'm a lifetime member of the NRA. If you ever get emails from the NRA or do anything with guns, the NRA always hammers gun safety, gun safety, gun safety, and ever go to a range and you do something stupid, they'll kick you off almost immediately. Uh, 
I did want to ask about the the education piece of sort of, uh, and that's I think that's actually something that the NRA has talked about before, maybe not on sort of a national scale, but at least kind of on some state level issues. Uh, do you think that those are like trainings that are done by the government, right? Or like by local gun store, you know, you go in, you get some sort of education certificate, then you're able to buy, or do you think it's kind of like there's, you know, state sponsored programs or things like that? Just kind of curious to dive a little bit more into, into kind of what your plan would look like for that. No, I think that, that uh, uh, properly licensed gun dealers could offer education classes in that, let's say, let's say there is a 30 day wait period before you get your gun. One of the things you do then is you sign up for a class that's sponsored by the uh, by the uh, gun shop, and they they show you you know like what to do with the gun. If you think about what happened during the pandemic, millions and millions of people ran out to get guns for all the reasons that they thought they needed to have a gun during the pan- pandemic, and the vast majority of them, I would um, venture to say, actually don't know how to shoot the gun, probably haven't shot the gun, and certainly haven't gotten training in it. Where would you go to get training? Everybody was locked down. So everybody's got all these guns that they bought during the pandemic and they don't know how to use them. This is not good from a second amendment standpoint. Like we would like to have a well-trained militia. We would like to have a militia that could actually function and wouldn't shoot its neighbor you know, in the process. And also I think it makes sense from a safety perspective that, uh, that there's training. And I, I don't, so I don't think it should be a state sponsored program. I'm not very much on state sponsored anything. I think that the uh, that a local gun shop could easily put that in as a uh, as a market rate training, and uh, it wouldn't work great. Um, I am glad that you mentioned um, suicides because I think when we talk about gun violence, it's not always the first thing that comes to mind um, for people. But it is. I mean, you mentioned saving lives earlier, and that I I, I would love to work on uh, a waiting period bill. It's actually similar. They sometimes they call it the Charleston loophole. This idea that like if you if you don't pass the background check, um, they automatically allow the sale to proceed, and the, the closing the loophole would mean. And I think I don't think it would. I think r- rarely would it take longer than thirty days. So I think it, it might that might be a um, a two birds with one stone situation. The one item I'm curious about, I've started to hear some folks on my side of the aisle um, express some deep concerns about are the idea of ghost guns, these idea of 3D printed guns that basically anybody could print. Um, obviously, no background check if you're printing your own gun um, with a 3D printer. Do you have any thoughts on ghost guns and what we might do to ensure that those are um, obtained responsibly um, and safely? I think that that's um, unlikely to be enforceable and just a just a, a massive mess. Um, just look at what happened in Japan. I mean, in, in Japan, um, you know, I don't know how you say his name. You know, I never. Oh, never, Abe. Abe. Yeah. Abe or Abe. 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 Yeah. So 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 Mr. Abe was shot by a ghost gun. Okay. And this is in a this is in perhaps one of the most regulated countries in the world in regard to guns. So here's the basic, just the basic facts. If if someone wants to kill someone, they will figure out a way, okay? And whether they got to make a gun, steal a gun, find a gun, borrow a gun, get an ax, get a bomb, whatever it is, it's a horrible thing. You know, I'm completely, you know, obviously against murder and killing. I'm just stating the facts that if somebody wants to commit a crime, they're going to figure out a way to get it done. And so trying to get into a big deal around ghost guns and figuring all that, all that stuff out, I think is just um, 
way too convoluted and isn't going to really solve the issue anyway, because if someone wants to get a gun, there's 400 million of them out there anyway, they're going to get one. I will just say, I think there's things that we can do to make it less likely that they will succeed in killing someone. And that's sort of that's sort of what we try to do in broader society. That's why we create laws. It's why we hire law enforcement officers, et cetera. So I don't know. It, se- it seems to me if, if these 3D printers are going to become, you know, eventually something that everybody has in their home in 10 or 20 or 30 years, in terms of a regulatory environment, it'd be better to figure it out at the front end rather than in 30 years, all of a sudden the, you know, we're not going to work together on that one. It sounds like Michael. (laughs) No, we're still focusing on the wrong thing because the issue is not the gun. The issue is, is the person with the gun. And that takes us back to mental health, takes us back to education. It takes us back to broken families. There's a whole lot of societal issues that go into this issue that have nothing to do with, uh, with a firearm. They have to do with all the stuff that leads up to that. Let's take one of these things. And that's the violence in kids games right now. Some of that is uh, is leading to this. If, if you were going to regulate something, and I'm not much of a regulator, okay? I think we should have less laws and more individual freedom and all that. But if you were going to regulate something, before I regu- tried to regulate ghost guns and magazines and all of that, I would take a look at the, uh, at the, the um, sheer amount of violence in kids' videos. If, you, if you've ever watched, I don't know if you have kids, but if you've ever watched some of those videos, basically they teach kids to go shoot people. I mean, you know, when I grew up, I grew up with like Chuck Connors and the Rifleman. That was before your time. And, you know, they had gunfights and OK Corral and all that stuff, but they didn't train mass murderers. They, they saw guns primarily as a self-defense tool. So this issue about um, educating our children improperly is, is more important to me than regulating ghost guns. Let me, um, I'll ask you one more on this and then we'll move to what I think will be a a very fun question. And this is not a fun topic, obviously, but an important one. Um, It's an important one. So the United States has a much more severe problem by almost every measure when it comes to gun violence than any other country on earth. And a lot of the problems that you talked about which I totally agree. Mental health is a big part of this. Addiction is a big part of this. Um, those challenges exist in many other countries too. Um, so how, when you see you know, the consistency of these school shootings, of the sky high numbers of suicide, particularly from young males at the, at, uh, because of a firearm, why do you think that it's happening more, so much more often here in our country than it is in other places? So I'm not prepared to do the exact stats on this, but, but I also don't want to get too extreme. So any, any kid that shot is a horrible thing. One life lost is, is a time pro-life. Okay. Anything that takes life, uh, you know, unjustly, you know, I'm not for. And so one school shooting in a whole generation is too many, but let's just not get too far down the path because then say, well, yeah, they're just happening every day and all of that stuff. So it, let's not get extreme on it. So there, there, there are school shootings, way too many of them, but one would be too many of them. But part of the challenge is in, in debates like this is we go too far extreme and say, oh my God, you know, there's school shootings everywhere. We gotta, we gotta clamp down on all of this. And uh, that's how I heard the, how your question was framed. And so we, we have to deal with the issues that are really the issues. 
And those issues are social issues, not gun issues. Cool. Well, we will have to look up the data on that, but I, um, I think the, the data, well, people will, will be able to make up their own mind uh, on the sure. instances of school shootings and um, gun deaths in this country. Um, By the way, you know, you know what the biggest, you know what the biggest uh, killing in schools was, right? It wasn't guns; it was explosives. Sure, so that one up. Sure, as a so, single incident, so but not, not as a just... trend, right? I mean, that's not like a that's not a consistent thing that's occurring. I don't think. Well, there there have been multiple bombings. You know, you just look at Oklahoma City and all of that. I'm I'm not making an excuse for for shooters. I hate this whole thing. Okay, I'm totally you know I'm totally pro law enforcement. Totally you know public safety. Um, hate the idea of kids getting shot. Just want to make sure that we're going after the right thing because gun control would not have stopped that guy in Uvalde. All the things that are being proposed would not have stopped that guy because he was determined to do that and he had grown up in a situation that led to that. So we have major social issues to address that are way more important to put attention into than uh, the reactiveness around guns. Well, this is obviously one where, you know, people will disagree, but I appreciate the the willingness to have sure. a respectful conversation about it. Um, Absolutely. The, the fun question is, you mentioned before we started recording that you um, have or have been on a podcast of your own. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your podcast background? Sure. So uh, during the pandemic, you know, when everybody did new things, right, new yeah. things online, um, I started a podcast and I interviewed um, a, um, a wide range of some of the top Christian CEOs across the country. And, uh, and I did that along with Forbes. Um, and uh, so that's uh, uh, Forbes Books um, and the uh, ForbesBooksRadio.com backslash 10x is that podcast. And then um, um, when I decided to run for office, I decided I'd circle back to that. And so I started a podcast called Cascade Views. And so it's called the Cascade Views podcast. And we're um, in discussions with local leaders governmental leaders, community leaders on topics of, uh, of really key interest. So part of the reason that uh, that I'm tuned up on homelessness and mental illness and law enforcement and, and a bunch of this stuff is because of the time I spend with people who are deep in the middle of it. Um, you know, with uh, with preparation for a podcast, you, you have to put time in and preparation and then your interview with the person, you always learn something and then you get to talk to them afterwards, then you become friends, <laughs> yeah. you get to go to coffee and next, next thing you know, um, you, know you, you actually have access to, to some great information. And so the podcasts have been extremely valuable for me as a candidate to get prepared to go to Salem and serve and to get tuned up on the issues, not from a theoretical level, but, but from actually a grassroots level um, from people who are actually working in, in that area. And so, um, and then from the standpoint of our listeners, um, it's great because they get to hear from, for example, tomorrow I'm interviewing the county administrator, Nick Lelac for mm. Deschutes County. And if I think if you were to go around Deschutes County, maybe maybe any county and say, how's the county work? You know, how does this, how does this whole thing go together? You know, how much money does the county have? How many people do they have? What do they actually do anyway? What's the difference between the state, the county, the city? How does that overlap? And, and what's a county administrator? I heard about county commissioners. What's a county administrator? So Nick's going to come on and he's going to do a little educational program for us 
about how the county works, what his role is, what the role of the county commissioners are, what their role is in relation to the state, in relation to the city, um, how much uh, authority they do or don't have, and how this whole thing goes together. And so those are really the thrust of the podcast. They're really educational in, uh, in topics that, that voters really don't have great access to figure out. Like, how would they, how would they learn that? So that's what the point of the podcast is. It's going really well. That's cool. I'm very bullish on podcasts. I think uh, it's going to be a, a very fastly growing media over the next few years. Are there any podcasts that you listen to uh, on your own as inspiration or for entertainment or that you recommend to folks? Oh, the Oregon Bridge. I'm like <laughs> totally. <laughs> but give us a five star rating uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. <laughs> Shameless, shameless, right? <laughs> Actually, the reality of it is I run, um, I run two full-time businesses, um, major community projects, uh, a nonprofit that actually, my wife actually runs uh, a nonprofit that works with, uh, with women um, graduates of recovery programs. So we're actually really in tune with this whole addiction, uh, mental illness, homeless pr- uh, challenge not just at a state level, but actually down at the sidewalk level. So actually have a lot of understanding of this intimately. So anyway, we've got that going on. And then there's this campaign thing. Um, and so <laughs> I don't have a lot of time to listen. I have a lot of time to listen to podcasts. I barely, barely can do my own podcasts. Totally understand that. Uh, Alex. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, well, great. Well, well, Michael, thank you uh, so much again for, for taking the time to join us uh, and talk about a wide variety of issues. Uh, as Ben and I always joke, we, you know, people have to be really prepared with talking about a bunch of different issues and we went everything from guns to water. So uh, thanks so much again for, for taking the time to come on. Uh, and before we let you go, uh, if folks want to uh, read more about where you stand on the issues, if they maybe want to volunteer with your campaign, if they want to go check out your campaign website or just learn more about you, uh, where can they go to find you to do that? Sure, the campaign website, I mean, you guys have looked at campaign websites for, for years, right? I think if you have spent any time on mine, you'll find that it's probably one of the more substantive websites in mm-hmm. politics. Uh, and that's because I'm not a politician, I'm a business guy. And so, you know, I, I want people to dig in on substantive issues. I want to have them um, uh, focus on this stuff and actually not just see bullet points and, and platitudes. And so my website is a voice for centraloregon.com, a voice for centraloregon.com. And uh, on there, you'll see um, all the podcasts, you'll see all the media. Um, I've got a whole bunch of articles that have been published on many of the topics that we're talking about, homelessness, Measure 110, on gun control, on and on and on, um, blog posts on all of these that are, are, are quite extensive because basically if people vote for me, I want them to vote for me because they say, you know what? This guy actually has thought this stuff through. I might not agree with him on everything, but um, but this is a candidate with substance and also one that when he goes to Salem is prepared to actually get something done. And that's what I think you'll find when you see um, the website and all of the discussion on, on serious issues that is there for people to get an education on and also get an insight into how I might behave when uh, when I get a chance to serve with you. Great. Well, yeah, well, thank you so much again for for coming on. And everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, Please make sure to give us five stars and hit the subscribe button. And we will see you in the next one.